When most people around the world picture Britain, or at least the British weather, drought is probably not the image that comes to mind. Especially with our rolling hills, diverse wildlife and lush green fields. But the country has a dark secret. Not all of it is actually that wet. Actually, the most populated region of the country, the east and southeast of England, enjoys much less rain than many major cities worldwide. London, for example, endures about 580 millimetres of rainfall every year, compared to 640 millimetres in Paris, 1530 in Tokyo, or 1,270 millimetres in New York. This list of rainfall statistics is going somewhere. This warmer, drier region nestled in the south and east of Britain is facing a double threat from a growing population and climate change, which is threatening the very thing that the UK is thought to have in abundance – water. In its 2017 Climate Change Risk Assessment, the Committee on Climate Change highlighted shortages in water supply as one of five priority climate change risks that needed stronger policies and urgent action. And research by the committee suggests that water demand in England will exceed supply by between 1.1 and 3.1 billion litres by the 2050s, depending on population growth and the severity of climate change. This is a substantial proportion, considering the total daily consumption standing at about 14 billion litres in 2018. Listen to episode 49 for more on that. Water companies are working hard to improve network efficiency and to reduce leakage, while the Environment Agency is encouraging less water use. But there is another angle to this, another way that engineering can help. Although some regions are very dry, much of the country isn't. And across much of the island, the drizzly reputation is well earned. And we can help the problem by tapping the areas that have more abundant water resources to slake the thirst of areas with less. One of these areas with the most need is the east of England, which sits to the north and northeast of London. Its population of 6.5 million people has its water provided by Anglian Water. Anglian Water currently enjoys a surplus of 150 million litres per day but this is set to disappear in the future. Over the next 25 years, population growth will demand an extra 109 million litres per day. Sustainability reductions designed to protect water resources will reduce the available water by 85 million litres per day. And climate change is expected to sap another 58 million litres. And on top of that, there's a requirement to build in a buffer zone of 26 million litres in case of severe drought conditions and an additional 16 million litres for what Anglian calls headroom or any other unforeseen eventualities. Resulting in a final supply-demand balance of negative 144 million litres per day by 2045. To help prevent this environmental catastrophe, Anglian Water have spearheaded a new and immense water network that's being planned, delivered, managed and maintained with the latest in digital technology. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we have partnered with Costain to look at digital twins. But while we've spoken about these futuristic tools of a better run tomorrow before, we haven't actually heard much about how you go about developing one. What can go wrong? What's a good idea? What's a bad idea? And what the challenges are? 
So this week, we are looking at Anglian Water's Strategic Pipeline Alliance, as it attempts to delicately manage the water resources of the east of England, and move the stuff of life to where it's needed. It's the story of one of the largest water projects in recent years. And how the methods of the future will be used to safeguard water for the future. But before we get into how to digital twin, we should talk about the project itself. Anglian Water's new strategic grid to move potable water around the region. Yeah, so the Anglian Water region is one of the driest in the country and we, we receive on average only two thirds of the national average of, for rainfall. This is Guy Gregory. He works for Anglian Water as the digital twin and asset data lead within the Strategic Pipeline Alliance, which is made up of Costain, Jacobs, Mont Macdonald, Bentley and Farrens, and which is delivering the project. In addition to water stress, the region's population growth has grown by 20% over the last uh, 20 years and it is expected to grow further, so quite some challenge in terms of population. We also have a need to protect the environment from over-abstraction and hence our 2025 vision is to deliver large-scale, holistically linked water transfer resilience system, um, of which SPA will deliver a, a large pipeline. The project will see 420 kilometres of large diameter pipeline, pumping stations and storage points, installed at a cost of £350 million. Primarily, it will bring water from the north of the region to its south. It forms part of Anglian's Water Resource Management Plan, which will be linked to in the show notes. Which will make the east of England resilient to the risks of drought and reduce customers on a single supply system to 14.1% by 2025. The water company has laid down a challenge though, to ensure this complex and vital new network performs its task as efficiently as possible. We've also been challenged by Anglian Water to deliver a digital asset as well as the physical one and we will call this the Digital Twin. The reason to invest in creating a national digital twin was, in Guy's words... Very simple really, this is a quick answer. We decided to invest in the Digital Twin because we believe that it will drive efficiencies in the way that we conceptualise, design, procure, assemble, commission, operate, maintain, enhance and replace our assets. The first step to developing the Digital Twin is setting out the business case. Our biggest challenge is defining exactly what we will deliver as part of the SPA digital asset and how we plan to leave that sort of legacy that will be able to grow across the business. Other challenges include getting that stakeholder buy-in to the cultural changes that Anglian Water will need to consider. Um, and this is important so that we're able to have continuity with the digital twin. It's also important because the digital twin is not just something that we're going to hand over at the end of the project. It's going to be a continuous change mechanism. And the best way to make sure of this was to make sure the twin was actually relevant to the supply chain, which meant actually asking them what they needed. This is something Guy calls user stories. Yeah, so we, so we went out to Anglian Water um, employees, we went out to Anglian Water operators, we went out to Anglian Water managers, and we asked them a simple question. What do you think the Digital Twin can do for you? And they came back with answers. For example... We think that we would like the Digital Twin to be able to take readings from our pumps and pass them back to us in the central control room so that we can see how the pump is operating. 
those are the sorts of things that are sort of we start to build up the user stories. Now, the difficulty asking people to tell you what they think the digital twin can do for them is that they, you don't if you don't know what you don't know. So it's just a starting point, um, and then you need to look at what what is the art of the possible, and sort of bring those two things together to come up with something that fits for your business. There isn't such a thing as a digital twin bought off the shelf. It's bespoke to your organisation, and therefore, you know, it's not a one size fits all. This working closely with the supply chain is important, and people have worried in the past that a digital twin might lock out some of the smaller operators. But Guy says this isn't the case. When we're going out to the supply chain, we're actually asking them the about their their maturity, just to, so that we understand how we need to collaborate with them. In some cases, we'll find that the supply chain have an enhanced level than we've got ourselves, so we'll learn from them. In some cases, we'll have to work with them to bring them up to, to that level. Um, but it is absolutely not a barrier to working with us. And Anglian Water has set out a 15-year roadmap to show what their digital twin journey will look like. So during the next five years of AMP7... Asset Management Programme 7. The UK water industry operates in five-year investment cycles. It calls AMPs. We'll be using the SPAR vehicle to really understand what we mean by digital twin and to start to develop these user stories into tangible outcomes. The, the SPAR pipeline is a, is a linear greenfield site with above and below ground assets and with connections to an existing network. And therefore, this is ideal to use as a demonstrator uh, for the digital twin. During the next five years after this, sort of AMP 8, Anglian Water will look to expand the SPAR digital twin blueprint um, and we'll do this across both our water and our wastewater networks. And we shall almost we'll grow it um, with asset interventions and also with standalone business cases. And then once we get into AMP 9, Anglian Water uh, sees us contributing towards that national digital twin and using information from other organisations as a sort of business as usual. We see also that the use of AI will be very sort of valuable at this point as well. But to give us more information about those initial setting up phases of the digital twin, here is Kevin Reeves. I suppose with any new technology, there's that desire to jump straight in and, and start trialling it. Kevin is the director for the Internet of Things and Digital Twins at Costain. He advises that any companies looking to set up a digital twin should examine their actual needs, then work backwards, like Anglian Water have. Step back and really think about the strategic outcomes that, that a business has. So what are those big objectives, the strategic objectives that, that an organisation is, is looking to drive? Because we work predominantly in a regulated market. In this case, meaning the water industry. Quite often the, the answers already exist. And if you think about a water company, you know, they have regulated outcome delivery incentives that they have to meet that are set by Ofwat as the regulator. Ofwat is the UK government's water regulatory body. It has responsibility for ensuring prices are reasonable, water supply is sustainable, and that water suppliers are functioning responsibly. And, and that really does help to start to think about the business case. You can say, well, what if we use the digital twin to help reduce leakage? Well, straight away, you know, you're, you're linked to one of the regulated outcomes of a water company, and the business case kind of stands up for itself. But whether you are operating in a heavily regulated space such as the UK's water sector or in a less prescriptive environment, 
the approach should be centered on one thing. And it really does come down to baselining. You know, if, say, you've got Joe and Joe's a maintainer, how long does it take Joe to currently work through their, their, their daily process? And how might a digital twin uh, help them become more productive? And that might be through, you know, remote engagements. So they don't have to drive to a site. It might be making sure they've got the right information available to them when they get to a site so they haven't got to come come away as an abortive visit. Um, it really is getting down to that granular layer of, of baselining, you know, what the business does now, what individuals do now, and thinking about how a digital twin can help them be more productive, uh, but also think about enhanced decision making as well. Um, so there are lots of different aspects that, that can be explored. But yeah, to summarise, starts with strategy, align to strategy, to the strategic objectives of the organization uh, and then start to work down into the detail. So the company or organization knows what it wants, but what is the next step? According to Kevin, it isn't a leap into the dark for many. This is the area that I find most exciting. We find actually they already have many of the components that make up a digital twin. And I always use a horse company example because they're more advanced than they give themselves credit for. Uh, they really are. Yeah, and you talk to them and say, well, you've got real-time systems already. You know, you, you spend huge amounts of money in real-time control and automation, and you've got really good asset management systems. Oh, and you've already got a really good GIS system. GIS, a geographic information system. It analyzes the physical space and the positioning of assets. Oh, and by the way, you're already adopting BIM. You know, you start joining together those different pieces of the jigsaw and, and they soon realise that actually they're, they're more advanced than they think. Of course, there are always gaps. And one of the biggest issues is one that emerges time and time again. Yeah, that's really true of any large organisation, really. Uh, quite often it's that relatively siloed nature of big organisations, those cultural barriers that we need to break down and we need to overcome. If you imagine somebody working in one particular team, one particular function, you know, they quite like to work in their silos. And you know, when you ask them to work with different parts of the business, there can often be that, uh, that bit of reluctance to do so. And it really is important to get different business functions to work together, particularly around digital solutions, really break down those cultural barriers because, you know, the intelligence that can be driven across an organisation by integrating those different disciplines you know, is absolutely phenomenal. And it's, you know, not just sort of the cost aim view of the world, I suppose. You know, when you look at the different standards that are being developed, you have the traditional uh, asset management standards, I say 55,000. But that's evolving. You know, there's a, a new PAS called PAS 280, which is focused around through life engineering that, that promotes exactly that. You know, the breaking down of those cultural barriers across an organisation, really thinking about alignment to a uh, common strategy to unlock that value that, that's currently hidden away. A PAS is a publicly available specification. They are basically fast-tracked specs pushed by a sponsoring organisation to meet an immediate need. And they function more or less as standards, but last two years before being reviewed to see if they should be formalised or to be withdrawn. They often invite feedback by their very existence. And this looks at breaking down those, those kind of business function barriers that exist and aligning those business functions to a, a common strategy, um, seeking to achieve common goals for exactly this reason, because it's, it's recognised as being a problem everywhere. Moving on from the initial challenges of setting up a digital twin, Kevin cites Network Rails' definition for the stages a digital twin can go through. 
Basically, these are usefulness thresholds that the model can pass through. Because they've got one of the best descriptions of this I think I've seen. And um, they, they relate to BIM as being the static twin. So what the BIM process does is it builds up a really rich information set about your assets. But at the moment, at least, BIM kind of stops there. So Digital Twin is then, well, how do you take that rich information set and start to put it to use? And Network Rail talk about going from a static twin to, to being a, um, a kind of a performance-based twin. So that's where you start to link in real-time data, for example so that you can start to test or validate some of that rich information that you've already got. The next step for them is then saying, well, how do we then progress that to become a predictive twin where you're starting to introduce predictive capabilities? So predicting ahead of time before a particular asset might fail, as an example. So then you're moving away from planned maintenance where you're, you know, you just got a fixed schedule and you're maintaining it because you think you should to actually condition-based monitoring and predictive capability, reducing your asset management cost. And then the next step that they've got in their four-step process is, is then thinking about what an intelligent twin would look like. And that's where it gets really exciting because then you're talking about um, intelligent assets that coordinate and optimize um, automatically. Uh, they all talk to each other and they self-optimize. Amazing idea. It has actually been done in some some other sectors. So, you know, it's not, um, it's not, not too far-fetched it is possible but i really really like that description i think that really does describe you know the sort of bim as a foundation but then moving through various layers of maturity to get to what is kind of the nirvana view i suppose of digital twin and this maturity ladder if you like has been mapped out already there's actually a really good uh, industry maturity matrix that was developed by the iet and atkins and that gives a really high level view of the kind of digital twin maturity because, you know, at its lowest level, a digital twin might just be underpinned by a spreadsheet with a bit of process automation. It might be as simple as that, um, all the way up to, uh, you know, a truly intelligent asset that's self-optimizing and everything in between. As industry, as organizations, what we've done is taken that then and worked with the likes of Anglian Water, as an example, to apply that framework in a water context. So what we've developed with Anglian Water is a specific maturity matrix that's suited to their organization and their asset type that helps them walk through that process of, you know, a kind of a static twin as we are now, all the way through to something that's really quite advanced and using AI. There are two major challenges remaining on the road to producing a digital twin. The first is making sure legacy asset data and new data marries up effectively. This can also apply if you are integrating assets from one organization with another. I'll start with the national picture because it's relevant. So if you think that's challenging in one organization, think about the challenge CDBB have as a national digital twin in trying to provide that high-level data model for all of infrastructure. The Centre for Digital Built Britain is a partnership between the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and the University of Cambridge. It tries to understand how the construction and infrastructure sectors could use a digital approach to better design, build, operate and integrate the built environment. You can hear from its chair, Mark Enzer, in episode 31. And the way that they're approaching it is by developing a um, high-level ontology. And what an ontology does is describe the relationships between different things. So it isn't a rigid data model. It, it is literally a, a way to describe 
interactions between similar types of things. So over here, somebody might call a pump a pump. Over here, they might call it something else, you know, pump X. Um, the ontology helps you identify that they're both talking about the same thing and yeah, enable you to drive insight even when the under the under, underlying data is in different formats, different structures, different nomenclatures. So that's kind of one approach. What's happening within specific organizations is they tend to have actually pretty good data models in place. The final challenge facing the digital twin, and especially the national digital twin, is data security, and it is a big one. So what we have found is, you know, there does need to be some form of legal or commercial framework to give organisations the confidence to move forward with sort of, you know, large scale data sharing. And some project owners in the UK have moved forward with what they call a data trust. And a data trust, which is a concept first developed by the Open Data Institute, does start to provide that framework for data sharing. We have taken that to the next step and we've spoken to or taken some legal counsel um, with a, a leading uh, legal firm and they, they started to, I suppose, set out the, the sorts of challenges that we need to consider and the complexity that's involved in, in doing it. And as a result of that work, we've kind of identified that really this is something that industry needs to tackle as a whole. If not, there could be multiple data trusts all doing the same thing and not sharing their data. So this is another area that we've been exploring with the Centre for Digital Built Britain, looking at, you know, can we push this up to industry level? Can we create some form of industry working group that starts to tackle some of these really big issues to unlock the tremendous value um, that a national digital twin will create? So yeah, we don't have a perfect answer yet, um, but certainly steps in the right direction to start to tackle some of those big questions. And the questions are really being raised all the time. As we think more and more about digital twins, more possibilities emerge. My name is Karolina Tuchitska, and um, I am a PhD student with Costain. So in a sense, the digital twin has raised the aspirations and has given the minimum requirements has has established the minimum requirements of what we should be doing, what kind of data we should be collecting and how our processes should be looking like so that even if we're not completely doing it, we could still be close to that um, ideal of the digital twin. On first sight, uh, while doing the benefit measurement, we realized that these are the benefits for the asset owners and eventually the benefit measurement exercise is not the only to say we have saved 754,395 pounds <laughs> but rather to also have have this exercise of assigning worth and um, putting together the chains of consequence and learning from from it as for the future where the digital twin idea is going, Carolina points towards analytics. With 4D BIM, so the first element of the digital twin, or the approximation of it for the site, was through 4D BIM sequencing. 4D BIM is the level at which real-time information on the program design and delivery is added to the 3D model. 
However, the evolution, I think, went towards greater data analytics. So it's good to represent what is happening and it's good to visualize geospatially and it's good to plan ahead. But there is more and more desire to actually understand what can we learn from past movements? What can we learn from previous performance? What can we learn? How can we improve on it? What are the elements potentially causing delays or clashes? So from the exercise of representing and coming together and looking at the future as there is more data gathered and as there is a variety of tools available there is an effort to look also analytically at the past to learn for the future. This is what she calls the heartbeat of the digital twin and heartbeat is a good term because there is one vision for the future of the design, delivery and operation of infrastructure that Carolina takes exception to. Quite often I hear in the industry different leaders um, saying that construction and complex project delivery is going towards uh, manufacturing or that we should be going towards manufacturing. And um, I am to an extent an outsider, but I think a very empathetic outsider to, to the to the sector. And I think it's a bit reductionist uh, really to compare uh, complex project delivery um, to, to manufacturing or wanting to go towards it. And the digital twins that I've, or the attempts at digital twins that I've encountered and the thinking, I think bring complex project delivery closer to healthcare and medicine rather than manufacturing because ultimately one has a very tightly coupled complex system with an extent of, I guess, repetition across the days of the project. A project that is wildly different from producing identical units of product. But ultimately, um, it's very different from producing a car through 30,000 times. You have different ground conditions, you have different councils, you have different local communities, you have a wide variety of supply chain affected by a thousand different factors. And, and the patient is different <laughs> every single time as well. And I, I really do believe in the, um, in the peculiarity of, of every single project. So I would say that it's better, I think, to compare the digital twin of a live project site to a digital twin of a hospital. Here's Kevin again, emphasising once more that the most important thing to remember about implementing a digital twin is to use it as a tool, not to pursue it just because it's shiny and new. I suppose the thing that frustrates me is, you know, every organisation out there approaches clients, oh, you know, we've got the answer, we've got, we got solution X, we've got solution Y, and then you, you end up with this cycle of just trying different solutions, and it's almost like a solution looking for a problem. Start by thinking big. What's the big, bold ambition of your organization? You know, where do you want to be in 10, 15 years' time? Because from a digital twin point of view, you need to start thinking about an architecture that supports that big, bold ambition. So think big, really big, would, would be kind of, um, I suppose, my first encouragement. Second encouragement would be don't don't be afraid to, to really go for it. You know, a lot of people say to me, oh, isn't that a bit like boiling the ocean? So, well, you know, you can boil the ocean one kettle at a time, it's fine. <laughs> uh, and then it's also be really, really, really clear on the business case. The business case, the financial justification for investment, which means being able to demonstrate that long term the digital twin is going to benefit the business. This is something that Anglian Water is adept at. 
Its pioneering carbon reduction program demonstrated to the entire infrastructure and built environment sector that saving carbon reduces cost. Its investment in over a thousand energy saving projects between 2010 and 2015 saved the business and the water bill payer £20 million. Anglian Water pledged to be net zero by 2050 back in 2016 before anyone else was talking about carbon reduction or Theresa May made it a legal requirement for the entire country. Only time will tell if Anglian Water will have the same level of success with its digital twin. For other asset owners looking into this, Kevin has some words of warning. There are so many great shiny tools out there with, with a digital twin badge on them. It is easy to be seduced uh, by some of the technology, but it really does need to be focused around a business case. As long as it's adding value, you know, you'll get the business buying. As long as the user experience is good, people will adopt it. So yeah, they're, they're, they're the key things for me. Big, bold vision. Don't be afraid to go for it uh, and make sure that it's uh, wrapped up in a good, robust business case. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by Alex Conacher. Co-hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne and with script editing by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young and our own executive digital twin is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Costane and Anglian Water. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Share us on Twitter and find us on LinkedIn.